I'm going to read the whole chapter of Zachariah, chapter 3. It's two verses that I want us to you know, consider fully on, but I want us to get the gist of the story. It's a, you know, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and um, I have talked about all this event on quite a number of occasions, so what I'm going to say tonight is will be quite familiar, I think, to us, but we're going to be looking at it in the, in the sort of the realm of prophecy tonight. So, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my commandments, then you shall also judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. It's a, it's a, a great scene, uh, is that one, and I love it. And uh, I could preach on it every week, really. Now, we saw last time that... Um, Zechariah actually comments on the two most significant and indeed the most important events in the whole of history. We saw that uh, he comments on the first coming of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and he also comments on the second advent of our Lord. You know, when we looked last week, if you remember, at chapter 6, and um, we saw uh, there that he's called Jesus the branch. Now this is his uh, messianic title. 
he is the branch. And I said it's, um, it's repeated. This thought of Christ being the branch is repeated uh, here in uh, Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 3. It's also repeated in Isaiah and it's also repeated in Jeremiah. And um, I said last week that when you put all the little references together, you will get a 3D picture, a perfect 3D picture of who the Messiah is, is and what he will accomplish in his life and also in his coming, in his glorious return. The branch. You know, we saw last week that he is the priest upon his throne. You know, and um, he will take up the office of king and high priest. And we saw that it was impossible for him to do that. In that the priest came from the group or the tribe of Levi and the king comes from the tribe of Judah. And we know that Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah and therefore to be royal was his um, destiny. But to be a priest, well no, he couldn't do that. That wasn't open to him. And we saw how wonderful that was for us. Because we bumped into a guy called Melchizedek. And we saw that Melchizedek's priesthood preceded that priesthood of Levi. And we realized that Christ's priesthood was after the order of Melchizedek. And therefore ministered not just to the Jews, as he would have if he was a Levitical priest, but he ministers to you and I. This was before the Jewish nation ever came into being. We see Melchizedek the priest of the Most High God. And we can see that God desires that the whole world be saved. Not just this little group of people that, were, that hailed from uh, Israel uh, 3,000 years ago, but He wants to bless the whole world. And that was the promise that He made to Abraham, if you remember, that through you, through you a seed, all the, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's and the only way that Christ could accomplish that is if he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not Leviticus, Levitical, but Melchizedekian was the word I used very carefully uh, last week. And we, we bumped into him and, uh, and we said, well I put him down, here he is. That is what we said last time, then Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine he was the priest of God most high and he blessed him and said blessed be Abraham of God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands and we can see there that he is the king of peace he is the king of righteousness and he is the high the most high priest or the priest of the most High God. And you know, and where there we can see all the characteristics, the traits, the, the offices and the ministries that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ possesses. That He is our King of Righteousness. He is our King of Peace. And He is the priest, the high priest that represents you and I before His Father. So yes, He is a priest upon the throne. Now, I'd like us to, tonight, as, I, as you can see, I'd like us to go back from chapter 6 to chapter 3. Because I still want us to continue looking 
at the first coming of Christ. Only this time, I want us to proceed to the cross. I want us to go to the cross. You know, when we look at our passage of Scripture, I think that it's a very strange scene that we have in front of us. No, it's, uh, it's a courtroom scene, of course, that we have entered. You know what I think? You know, when you read it, it's a rather bleak and foreboding place. And there's the smell of guilt in the air. And there's also this feeling of resignation. You know, I suppose the, the phrase that we would use to describe this um, this scene, this courtroom scene, would be the phrase "bound to rights," or "it's a fair cop." It's a fair cop. You see, Joshua. Now, I wanted to know that this isn't the one that fit the battle of Jericho. This is the high priest, and Joshua here is uh, representing Israel, and here he is representing Israel. I wanted to notice as well, I wanted to understand by way of you know, sort of introduction that in the book of Zechariah there are I think there's eight or ten visions. You know, and they don't really make sense uh, the visions unless you see what God is saying through them. You know, and this is one of those visions. So this hasn't actually happened. This is what God wants uh, Zachariah to see because this sight is very distressing very distressing because you see Joshua's clothes are actually stinking and we read that in the scriptures God isn't pulling any punches you know he hasn't um, not noticed this stinking person in the corner or in the dock you know he's not sort of uh, turning a blind eye to the sins of Israel you know we see you that Joshua representing Israel is wearing stinking clothes you know and the word that Zachariah uses you is not the nicest word that we could use in a pulpit you know and therefore he is stinking and stinking with sin and I want to also tell you that Joshua has no plea no alibi there is nothing that he can bring up with which to justify himself that's why I said there's a smell of guilt in the air and there's the feeling of resignation throughout this whole um, scene because Joshua has nothing to say he is guilty as charged now before him on the bench we have God and I wanted to remember that God has actually said something very specific about the scene that we are looking at. Not here, but in way back in Deuteronomy or Exodus. He says, I will not justify the wicked. I will not justify the wicked. You know, if Joshua... I'd remembered that little verse from Exodus 
And I would say that he would be shaking in his boots right now. He's walked into this courtroom and there in front of him is the person who has stated that he will not justify the wicked. To his uh, right was Satan, the accuser, ready to oppose him. And I would say that his job was quite simple. The filth of Joshua was plain to see. And all Satan had to do was to point it out or draw the attention of the court to the stench that was coming from the dock. Now this was his easiest case. You know, and he was reveling in it. Looking forward to the moment then he could show God the Most High exactly what his people were like. And you can feel the bloat starting to come up from the pit of his stomach as he realizes that he's got this. This is going to be the scene of his greatest victory. But as we read, events take a very strange turn. Because before Satan is able to utter one word, God speaks. Or the Lord speaks, it says. The Lord speaks. This could be Jesus. Now, I often, when I read the script, this scripture, I often think that Jesus is on his left hand. Satan was on his right hand, ready to accuse. But I think, looking at the rest of the scriptures, the Bible tells us that we have an advocate. An advocate, one who stands by the side of us and represents us in the case and speaks on our behalf. You know, I believe that. You know, I'm thinking, you know, the trouble is with God. <laughs> is that you don't know which one it is in this situation. You see, it seems to be two. The angel of the Lord is on the, the bench. And of course, the Lord speaks. So I'm assuming. I can't be sure, and I'm going to tell you that uh, this is my own thought. I'm assuming that Jesus, you know, the pre-incarnate Jesus, of course, uh, is standing by the side of him, and he now speaks, and he says, or he rebukes Satan. Now, Satan hadn't said a word yet. He hadn't said a word. He was just about to. He was just about to start his accusations. You and this is one moment that Satan didn't even have to lie. He could have said the truth and got away with it here. But the Lord rebukes him. And Satan has no answer to give him. And I believe then he leaves. You know, he's almost a non-entity in this courtroom. He thought he had his he thought he had it. And yet he says not a word and he has no influence. And I've said it here before, you can almost see that this courtroom is almost a house where family are sorting things out themselves. You know, we don't want to wash our dirty linen in public, we do it all behind our own closed doors. And this is what it is, and this is what, what God says, isn't this Joshua, isn't he the one that I've chosen? 
Isn't this the, the one that, uh, that I love and he's uh, a part of my family? What are you doing here? Get out. Go. You've got nothing to, I've got, you've got nothing to say. I don't want to hear what you've got to say. This is family business. And I thank God for that. But God isn't interested. You know, we think to ourselves, what if Satan told God what I'm like? Well, I tell you this, he's not interested. God isn't interested with what Satan's saying. Not at all. That's why he told him to go before he even had a chance to draw a breath. The scene has changed. But it's only changed a little. True that no longer is there an accuser. But as I said earlier, we didn't really need one. Because there is still a guilty high priest representing Israel clothed in stinking rags. So really, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed because God didn't really need Satan to point out the wickedness of Israel. Because he knew himself. It's so plain to see. So it, yes, it's changed in that Satan has gone. But nothing has changed because the guilt of this man and the sin of this man is still apparent. And then this confusing command comes from God. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, uh, and to him, he said, uh, to Joshua, Look, I hate that word see. Look. Better than him. It's better to put look than see there, I think. I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head. And they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by now I said it was a confusing command because I think it's quite confusing because this is the same one who said I will not justify the wicked and yet that is exactly what he seems to be doing look I've removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes aye but you told us that you won't justify the wicked but now you've told us that you've justified the wicked you know that's why it's confusing you know because how can God do that and still remain righteous how can God say that and still remain just that's a, the question that you've got to ask this text because it screams out at you you know and that's where this great prophecy comes into its own listen to it once again hear O Joshua the high priest you and your companions who sit before you for they are a wondrous sign for behold I am bringing forth my servant the branch for behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon the stone of seven eyes behold I will engrave its inscription says the Lord of hosts and I 
will remove the iniquity of that land in one day now we know that the branch is Jesus we know that he's referring to Jesus but he's referring to Jesus as God in the flesh can you remember last week when I was outlining the four um, sort of descriptions of the branch I said one of them uh, described Christ as the king and Matthew Matthew's gospel is the gospel of the king I said one of them described the branch as a servant and Mark is the gospel of the servant one of them described the branch as a man and of course Luke describes Christ as the man and one of them described the branch as God and John sort of presents Jesus as God so what we are doing here what Zechariah is doing here when he is talking about the branch he's not talking about God up in heaven but he's talking about God in the flesh in the flesh so this um, points us or um, sort of throws us if you like from this courtroom scene that is in um, Jerusalem at this time with Zechariah throws us or hurtles us 500 years into the future to a time when the branch Jesus Christ the Messiah was actually walking the earth now we saw that last week we saw him making his way from the Mount of Olives if you remember on his donkey on the fall of an ass we saw him going into the temple and we saw lots of things about Jesus but the branch is always referring to Christ in his earthly ministry and that's important for us to understand the rest of this prophecy you know we left him last week making his way to the cross from the Mount of Olives to the Mount of Moriah from accolade to rejection from glory to sacrifice that's where he is that's where he was you want it is in this context now we can look at this passage from Zechariah and I just want us to think of two things I don't tax your mind so much two things firstly his title look at his title my servant the branch now, I don't know if Sophie had been anticipating uh, my message tonight because of last week but I loved it when she brought out and um, she started playing the servant king because it fitted in with what I have to say so she might be spiritually aware of what's going on or she may have sat down and thought makes no difference how she came to it she came to it and we sang a wonderful song about the servant king but the context I believe of this passage of scripture gives us opportunity and gives us permission to consider the servant songs in Isaiah now I don't know if you know this but in Isaiah from chapter 40 through to 53 there are four songs and they are called the servant songs you know when they start off with those words behold my servant 
Behold, I think it's Isaiah 42 is one of them. And the last one is Isaiah 52, which is to be the one that we are looking at. You know, there are four. And between them, they describe the service of the servant. They describe the sufferings of the servant. And they also describe the exaltation of the servant of the Lord. And these four songs show the Messiah to be God's meek and gentle servant. And listen to this. He is a royal figure, so he's the king, who represents Israel in its ideal form. He is the high priest, atoning for the sins of the world. Now that's exactly what we saw last week. He is the royal priest. He is the king high priest. And there we can see it again in in Isaiah, in these songs, that we see him as the royal figure. We see him as the high priest atoning for the sins. And of course, we also see him as the deliverer or the Messiah who is to come and release the world from the prison house of sin. And therefore the song that interests us is probably the most familiar of them all. And that is Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to 53 verse 12. And for those of you who 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 come to the communion service on a Sunday morning would remember that each time I read Isaiah 53, I always start three verses before in Isaiah 52 because it is one complete song it's so familiar to us you know and um, I would say that this song is in fact a most vivid picture of Golgotha you know no one I don't think I know they do don't get me wrong I know the Jews would deny that the whole passage is about the events that lead up to Christ uh, on the cross I know the Jews will deny that and they will put a totally different if they interpret it, interpret it at all they will put a totally different slant on it but no one without an axe to grind would deny that this whole passage is about the events that lead up to and include Christ's experience of the cross Now in my Bible I have two headings. The first heading is the sin-bearing servant. Which I think is a lovely heading for chapter chapter 2, 52 and the the three verses there. And then the second heading is the sin-bearing Messiah of chapter 53. But it's what what an awful picture they paint. You know, no one looking at it would want it to have been there. They paint the sufferings of Calvary. And they spell it out so clearly. You know, and just as we saw when we were looking at Psalm 22 in these studies, you know, so Isaiah 52 seems to highlight other aspects of that same event. Suffering, pain, agony, humiliation bloodshed you know and it's not a very pretty sight it's not something that I would want to look at you know I don't know if any of you went to see the 
the passion of the Christ but personally I saw no point in it and I saw no point in going to see it besides the fact I didn't want to see any of that you know the mistreatment of Christ before he hung upon that cross that caused him to be unrecognizable as a man just as many were astonished at you so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men you know, and again as we enter into chapter 53 it becomes clearer as to what is actually happening you know I was thinking about it uh, today Calvary is brutal savage and you know there's a, there's a term in it wanton violence wanton violence you know and I don't think this scene that we see before us which is violent and horrible it wasn't done for the sake of violence I think this was the actions of the wicked men in their rejection of God's grace and provision it wasn't an opportunity just to kick somebody about I think this was deliberate deliberate it was rejection of God and of his grace you know and in, uh, in, a, in a way what happened on the cross in brutal form was but a rerun of what happened in the garden in a quieter form you see these people were rejecting God as he hung upon the cross and in the garden many many years before Adam and Eve considered and then rejected their creator so really speaking there's no difference in the scene in the garden to the scene at Calvary except for the brutality of it the same thing exactly was happening but at the same time it was the eternal plan of God that his beloved son would endure that rejection of men and suffer the wrath of God on behalf of those who had rejected him with such violence you know that takes an awful lot to get your head around really. and I'm going to read that sentence again but at the same time the same time as all this was going on nails, whips thorns spears, spit and blood the same time as that was going on it was God's plan that his beloved son would endure that rejection of men coupled with the wrath of God on behalf of those who were rejecting him with such violence can you believe what type of love God has for us it's absolutely incredible and thus we read as we get as, that as we read we get we get this feeling that year on the cross was a substitute standing in for someone else in fact standing in for us surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow and yet we esteemed him stricken or we reckoned him 
stricken, smitten, struck down by God and mm. afflicted. But he was wounded, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Mm. And he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. Mm. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid or the Lord has caused to land on him the iniquity of us all. How can the God who said I will not justify the wicked and yet at the same time say look I have removed your iniquity from you. And I will clothe thee with rich old. How can he still remain righteous? And here is the answer. He provides himself a substitute. So that his wrath is directed to himself in the form of his own son. You know, we have a, a little verse in Genesis again. You know, we know the story of Abraham. You know, Abraham answered a question that answers our question tonight. You know, his son was concerned. And this is what his son, he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? To which Abraham replies, my son, God will provide. Now, we could put for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That's a, a way that we could... Uh, translate that from Hebrew but we could also put God will provide himself for the lamb for a burnt offering and that's what we have here he's provided himself as a substitute his wrath is aimed at himself you know people call God a cosmic abuser people call God a childish person who needs to be placated. And someone has to do something to placate him. But let me tell you, the whole of the human race could do nothing to placate our God. They could give everything and they will not appease God. They will not pay for their sins. They will not atone for their iniquities. If the whole world got together and cut themselves or sacrifice themselves it would be of no value to God at all mm. the only person who could placate God's anger is God himself and that's what we have on this cross God in the flesh the branch the branch the servant of God he provides himself oh yes Christ is the suffering servant. Now, by going back to our passage, secondly, back in Zechariah, I want us to notice the last phrase of all. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, I suppose we could say that my first point, our first point, was quite theological in that it explained what was happening whereas my last point is quite prophetic 
in that it explains how and when this was going to take place and the clue is in the phrase one day one day now given the extent of sin in this whole world such a statement at the very least is a tall order now I was reading um, uh, a testimony of a man yet this week uh, beginning of last week and he said that he's praying for the continued health of the Nazis in Germany and I thought to myself what a strange prayer Lord touch the Nazis in Germany keep them healthy keep them strong keep them alive Lord you know and it was strange until he explained why because he says he reckons time is running out for these men to be caught and brought to justice and of course they're all in their 90s and stuff now and they will and he so his prayer that God will keep them living until he finds them and brings them to justice see his method in his madness straight away now what the, the point I'm getting at that was 75 years ago and here he is 75 years later he's still trying to right the wrongs of Hitler's evil regime you know it was an evil regime you know when we are uh, inundated with stories uh, on the net on the television wherever of the Holocaust you know lately there's always been something about the Holocaust in, uh, in, the, in the media 75 years ago and yet here is a person who is still trying to right the wrongs of what took place now put that in the context of God because what Hitler did is but a drop in the bucket to what has happened in the world over the last 6,000 years yes to us it is in your face it is too big to imagine that a, a, a regime could destroy 6 million lives mm. you know I can't you and I couldn't imagine that even though we've seen footage and read the stories and stuff I can't imagine that but can you imagine that that's nothing but the tip of an iceberg when we think of what man has done to man outside of that scope over the 6,000 years that uh, and that's without all the other sins that have been perpetrated in the name of freedom but God has set himself a task of dealing with the sins of the whole world in one day <laughs> in one day he hasn't got to pray Lord keep them sinners alive <laughs> because I'm running out of time and I want them brought to just know he's, he's going to do it all in one day so what we have to do is to try and identify that day because it's it's going to be a great day it's going to be a busy day it's going to be a powerful day it's going to be a challenging day what day is it is there a day in history when this claim was realized now we know from our first point that this day had to be when Messiah walked the earth because he was going to be the substitute 
So it had to be around about the time that he was here. So that narrows it down to a little time span of 33 and a third years, or 33 and a half years. You know, it's a tall order. But God has set himself this task. And we can be confident that if we search hard enough, we're going to find it. One day, 24 hours. You know, when I wrote those words, one day, 24 hours, my mind went to Gene Pitney. Obviously. Because he was one day away from his girlfriend's arms. 24 hours from Tulsa. <laughs> and, I, and I've got to be honest, I went to YouTube and I switched it on and I listened. I sat and listened to Gene Pitney singing 24 hours from Tulsa. You know, and an awful lot happened in those 24 hours. In fact, he fell in love with someone. And he told the one that he'd fallen in love with before that he wouldn't be coming back because he was going to spend his time with a girl that took him to a cafe and stayed. It's a lovely little story if it wasn't so sad for the one, the one person. But that's what I thought of. 24 hours. You know, and it's not long, is it? 24 hours. No, it was to Isaiah 53 that we went to in our first point. But that chapter is also quoted in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12 it says these words. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it's strange that that was mentioned in John chapter 12. Because if we uh, go back a few verses from the verse, verses in uh, that verse, we read the story of Jesus contemplating the very day that we're looking for. This is what he says. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then he goes on. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. See, we'd almost see in this court case. It's been acted out, here, not in vision form now, but in reality. It's coming to pass. You know, and therefore this one day that we've, we're looking for has got to be round about where we are now. But then he goes on and he says, well, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. But listen to this. This, this he said, signifying... By what death he would die. So not only have we got Isaiah 53 wrapped up in all this where we have already looked at this suffering servant who died on our behalf, who shed his blood on our behalf, who was crucified, who was pierced through, who was crushed for us. Not only have we got that there, but we've also got this person, this branch, this God in the flesh, trembling at the thought that he's going to go to a cross. Because that's the death. That he was going to die. 
And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, and we know that that is the thrust of crucifixion. You're nailed to a cross and then you're lifted up to die. Lifted up was he to die. You want just a few days later? Jesus died in exactly the same way as he said he would by you. He died that very death on the cross of Calvary. You want examining that death when the sins of the world would be removed in one day. Now we can trace Christ's footsteps as he travels that lonely road which ends in Joseph's grave. Now we know, don't we, that the Jewish day starts at six o'clock the day before, which I find to be quite confusing sometimes. Like, for the Jews, it's Friday at the minute because it's gone six o'clock. You know, and tomorrow night when we'll be having our Friday meal about six o'clock, it'll be Saturday for them. You know, and it makes it a little bit confusing. So you've got to realize that the day that we are looking at or looking for starts six o'clock the day before. So if that's true, and Christ was placed on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning, then what we have to do is trace our footsteps back 15 hours until we come to six o'clock the night before and when you realize that when you put that into the story that we're looking at you'll find something absolutely incredible because at six o'clock the night before we find christ in the guest room if you remember he asked his disciples to go into the town and he'd see a man carrying a water jug which would be totally unusual because women carried water that's, that's what they were for Roger. In, the, in those days and here was a man carrying water this is the one that Jesus told us about just like the donkeys we saw last week this is the one and he says where are we going to take our, is, where is Jesus going to celebrate the Passover I got the very room I got the guest room you know when we enter into the guest room we see Jesus sitting down with his disciples and an awful lot goes on, as you know. But the thing that strikes me is that what happened in the guest room as they sat, they were surrounded by the symbols of sacrifice. You see, this was the Passover meal. And the theme of this meal was redemption. But that Passover meal was never finished. Because Christ changed it a little and it quickly turned not into the Passover but into the Lord's Supper as bread re represented Christ's broken body was eaten and broken and eaten and wine that represents Christ's blood was drunk and therefore at six o'clock on the evening before crucifixion sacrifice was in the air and then they left. You know, Jesus, as you know, done some amazing teaching. John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are the pinnacle, the inner sanctuary of the New Testament. When they sang a hymn, it says, like good Baptists, and they made their way down to Gethsemane. You know, and here is 
probably the worst place on earth for Christ. Uh, this is the place of crushing. This is the place of testing. Mm. Now this was the crucible where you went in as one person and you came out differently because you came out broken. No one comes out to Gethsemane in the same way that they went in. Not even Jesus. Because when you examine the conversation between the Father and the Son, it revolved around the purpose for this day. They're in it now. They're going through it. It's a couple of hours old. You know, when they come to the end of that conversation, Christ is absolutely broken. His will is in tatters at his feet. As he commits himself to the will of the Father. Nevertheless, not my will. I put my will on the floor and stamp on it. Your will be done. And he commits himself to the Father and he yields himself to the cross. Sacrifice was in the air. Which led him to Gabbatha, which is the judgment hall. And if you were to look at uh, Israel today, or Jerusalem today, you would know that this place, as you look at it from the Mount of Olives, as you see the Dome of the Rock, which takes center stage, and there's the castle of Antonio to your right. And people, some people believe that that's where Gabbatha was. It was the judgment hall in uh, Pilate's palace and it included a beamer seat now as Christians we, we revel in the beamer seat because that's where we will meet Christ and that's where he will say well done now good and faithful servant mm-hmm. you know it's a, it's a meeting place which we look forward to but here is another beamer seat and on it is Pilate and this is where Jesus was being tried. I wanted to notice that the Temple Mount is actually Mount Moriah, which is the same place where Isaac said to his father, Look, we got the fire and we got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Do you wonder if he could have had split screen? That very day, he could have looked over his shoulder and he could have seen Jesus (coughs) lying before a beamer seat, presenting himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. God will provide himself a lamb. You see, it's the place, if you remember, where Pilate cried out twice. He introduced Jesus to the crowds. Do you know what my imagination is that Pilate was taken aback that Jesus could even walk after he received those 39 stripes. See, men have died having 39 stripes. And here is Jesus coming into Gabbatha. And this is what Pilate says. Behold the man. Behold the man. The man whose name is Branch. Here he is. And he's being introduced to the crowd. But when you go down through that story, he changes his proclamation. 
and just before he sends him off to Calvary he says behold you were king and I thank God that God became flesh and went to the cross for me and I thank God that he is now king of my life he's the man but he's the king and from there he was led to Golgotha you know where the Bible simply says and he I'm going to put it down here it is and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him Notice this is beginning to look like the day and of course at three o'clock he's dead he's dead it's the end there's three hours left you know and those three hours were jam-packed full of amazing things and the most amazing thing as I've said in, uh, in ministry a, a number of times is that Christ ended up in a grave why is that amazing? because Isaiah says he made his grave with the wicked which meant that he should have been slung into a refuse tip he, he didn't expect a grave he didn't deserve a grave because he died as a criminal and criminals don't get graves they get refuse tips and crows and rats do their job and that's where Christ was destined to go and that's what he says why it says in Isaiah he made his grave with the wicked but then he goes on but with the rich in his death you know very often you hear preachers saying that the resurrection proves that the sacrifice of Christ was sufficient and I believe that but it's a long wait, three days, isn't it? Three days. Did it work? Are we safe? Three days. No, God says, no, I tell you what. I'll place him in a grave. Because if he goes into a grave, he has satisfied the righteousness of God. Mm. That's why it's important. And when you look, we've got an old day. 24 hours. And the guest room merged into Gethsemane. And Gethsemane ran into Gabatha and Gabatha moved over to Golgotha and Golgotha brought him to a grave God's righteousness completely satisfied on our behalf one day 24 hours and sin had been dealt with once and for all atonement had been made and the blood of Christ flows for whoever will believe. How can God who said, I will not justify the wicked, go on to say, Behold, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. How can he do that without tarnishing his righteous character? The answer is by introducing his son the Lord Jesus Christ 
who became for us a substitute a standard to receive the rejection of men and the righteous wrath of God and look at this to finish for he made him for God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him praise his name